us. Let's try it once more. All right, it's not going to happen today, guys. All right, well, we'll go back to the old-fashioned way. Uh, you know, I have some Nichols family cousins in Texas that I was really getting to know well when I was a young kid. We had frequent family uh, gatherings, get-togethers at my granddad's. Uh, my granddad's name was Ulysses Grant Nichols, by the way. He was a, he was a Yankee, okay? <laughs> His, my grandma's name was Bessie, so Grant and Bessie, they had uh, six sons and two daughters. One of those sons was my dad. So that meant that we had a lot of cousins when we had those family get-togethers. And I'll tell you what, we lived in an ideal childhood area. It was called Moss Grove, Pennsylvania. It's way out in the middle of nowhere. It's more dirt roads than paved roads. Uh, hills, farmland, woods to run and scream and play in, and we did all that during our childhood but some of the greatest times were those family gatherings when we'd get together over at Granddad and Grandma's house. Uh, he had a huge barn that had some great hiding places in it. We'd be out there playing. He also had a chicken coop that didn't smell very good, but had some great hiding places too. So we'd get in there. Uh, got to know our cousins, and there were probably about 20 cousins that would be at those family gatherings at that time. We, just, we were getting close, getting to have fun and play together. Just wonderful, wonderful times as I look back on them today. But then, in the late 50s, early 60s, two of my aunts and uncles packed up their families and moved far away to Texas. And then a third one of them, Dan and Dee, my other uncle and his kids, they packed up and moved to Texas as well, Fort Worth area. And I remember when Dad and Mom came and told us kids that... Uh, our cousins were going to move away. Man, I, was, I went into grief. Uh, we, were, we had so much fun together. And I remember telling my mom, why are they doing that? And I'm never going to get to see them again. And you know what? For the most part, that is exactly right. I've probably, in 55 years, only seen three of those cousins and maybe just a time or two. And, uh, and so the fact of the, the matter is, we were close a long time ago, but now there's a lot of distance between us. Now, on social media, on Facebook, I have become friends with two of those cousins, Cheryl and Jody, down in Fort Worth, Texas. We communicate just once in a while, but I can look in and see what's going on in their lives, and they can look in and see what's going on in mine. But, but I would have to say that we're still very, very distant, nothing like we used to be. I'm saying all that to say this that it reminds us of the most important thing about all relationships, and that is this. We get to know each other, we get to be close to each other only by spending a lot of time together. That's the most foundational thing about relationships. Let me say it in a little more formal way. Relationships require people to intentionally invest themselves and their time in each other, or they will inevitably drift apart. It's the rule of relationships. Now, our series has been Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, and this series has been about relationships, about how we grow closer to the Lord and to each other, to others by clearing away all the garbage and all the layers of 
unhealthy stuff that has gotten buried under the surface of our lives, getting rid of all that stuff because it all creates relational distance between the Lord and us and between one another and us. It alienates us. Now, sometimes it can seem like the Lord has packed up and moved all the way to Texas too, doesn't it? Uh, sometimes it can seem like it's even further, like the Lord is on the other side of the moon. And if you're here this morning exploring Christianity, if you're here this morning searching this whole God thing out, spirituality, well, you might even think it's a strange thing that there'd be a group of people sitting here talking about actually being able to have a personal relationship with the God of the universe. I mean, after all, he, you would think as great as he is and as awesome as he is, he would be very remote from us. I mean, we're just specks in the universe. We're, nothing, we're just specks in the universe compared to God. But if you're a Christian this morning, you know that the very heart of Christianity is about a relationship-building God. And we're getting ready to enter into Holy Week, and that's what it's all about. This relationship-building God sent his son, Jesus Christ, into our world. Jesus went to the cross Good Friday for all of our sins to bear them so we could be forgiven. And he went there so all of our wounds could be healed. And then on Sunday morning, he rose from the dead. We're going to celebrate that with a great time together next week. Jesus rose from the dead, which teaches us that he is alive. He's God. And he is a person. He, can, he wants to have a relationship with every human being. And he paid the price to make it possible. So in this final sermon of this series on emotionally healthy spirituality, what we want to do is we want to tie together these seven paths of, emotional, of emotional health and spiritual maturity. We want to tie this all together this morning. And this seventh path that we're looking at today really does that. It brings all of these other six parts of the path of growing in Christ, it brings them all together. And it does that by, and the seventh path is this, establishing a rule of life. Now, what is a rule of life? And first of all, I don't like that word rule. I mean, do you? Sometimes, in this day and age, that word rule seems like a very harsh, oppressive, rigid kind of thing. Well, let's explain it then. The word rule comes from an old Greek word for trellis. Now, a trellis is a structured frame that gardeners still use down to this day to help vine plants get off the ground and sort of guide their growth. It brings them up into the sunlight. And, and uh, last uh, summer, Jill planted some morning glories off of our patio. And we, have a, we don't really have a trellis out there. We just have a fence. And uh, those plants found their way onto that fence, and they took it over. They took over the, the whole back patio. Well, that's sort of the idea of a trellis. So, the, so back in several centuries ago, uh, some Christians took this idea of a trellis, and they thought, and that's a great picture for spiritual growth. Uh, it's a framework to help provide, to help us grow upward and further and further in God. So they came up with a rule of life, uh, a, an intentional spiritual growth plan, a structure for our spiritual growth. And that's what we want to look at this morning. The scriptures present us with a very clear 
spiritual growth plan, an intentional plan that can keep us close to God, keep God from becoming distant to us. Uh, And it's built out of four basic practices or actions that we commit ourselves to as part of our lives, our lifestyle. And it's as we form our lives around these four basic practices that we will keep growing upward and further and further and higher in our relationship with Christ. Now, Peter Scazzaro, he makes the statement in his book that in our day and time, many, if not most Christians, do not have an intentional spiritual growth plan in place in their life. Most Christians are just sort of approaching spiritual growth as a hit or miss thing. Uh, I hope it happens. Maybe it'll happen. I'm hoping. I, I think it'll happen. I'm, you know, but it's, it's more of a hit and miss kind of thing. And what that does is that, that, that creates an emotional distance. There's a lot of Christians who would probably say, you know, when I first came to Christ, my relationship with him and this whole experience was so fresh. It was so powerful. It was new. I felt God's presence just, I felt God's presence surrounding me. But then it might be a, a year later, five years later, 20 years later. We might have that same person say, it's not like that anymore. I don't have that profound sense of God's presence in my life. Now, what, what's happened there? What, what has caused that to happen? Well, I think maybe it's some inattention to a structured plan for spiritual growth that God gives us very clearly in his word. So we're going to take a look at that this morning, beginning with the first part of this trellis. And we've talked about it already, but let's look at it again this morning. And that is solitude. Solitude. A time or times when it's just you and God who, are, who get together, who meet together one-on-one. And this is important because at the very basic, Christianity is about a relationship between you and God, a one-on-one relationship. That's the basic relationship in all Christianity. It's you with God. Now, Moses is our great example of a one-to-one solitude time with God. Exodus chapter 33, verse number 18. Moses makes the most radical human request. This is what he says. Moses said to the Lord, show me your glory. Show me your glory. Now, can you imagine that? A mere man looking up to God, being so bold, maybe some people would say so arrogant, as to to say to the God of the universe who created the far-flung galaxies, God, I want you to show me personally, here and now. Show me your glory. How did God feel about that request? Well, God replied, In verse number 19, the Lord said, I will cause all of my goodness, that is, all of my greatness and glory, to pass in front of you, Moses. And as I do it, I am going to reveal to you my name. And you know, the name of God is, his name is I am. His name is Yahweh. Uh, What this means is that God was going to listen to Moses' request and God was going to actually reveal, give Moses a glimpse into who he is, his awesome person, his awesome presence. Verse 22, when my glory passes by, Moses, I'm going to put you in the crevice of the rock and I'm going to cover you with my hand until I pass by 
because nobody can look on my face, see my total glory, and ever survive it. And so God came down, and just for Moses, he revealed his glory, his presence. Now, do you think Moses was ever the same again after that experience? I don't think anybody could have a glimpse or an experience of the very presence of God and not come away from that changed. Well, what God did for Moses is his growth goal for you and for every Christ follower. Listen to what 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 says. You can look it up in your Bible. 2 Corinthians chapter 18, verse 3, verse 18 says, chapter 3, verse 18 says, we are being transformed into the image of God from glory to glory. In other words, when we come to God and spend time with him and set our hearts upon him and come with our hearts, come seeking him like Moses did, And saying, God, I want to see your glory. God, I want to experience you personally. I want to know your presence. God will come to you personally like he did to Moses. If we set those solitude times alone with him, God will come to you. And here's what what God intends for to be the the first part of this trellis, the, the first part of our spiritual growth, is to be a an ongoing, consistent experience as we spend time with him, of experiencing from glory to glory to glory to another glorious experience to another experience of his glory to all the way till we get to heaven. That's what God wants for us in this first, twelli- in this first trellis. And that's why the first thing on this trellis is an ongoing, intentional, day-by-day lifestyle of solitude time with the Lord, just like Moses did. Now, remember a couple, three sermons ago, we talked about setting a rhythm in our daily life of at least having one or two. Daniel had three times per day, morning, lunch, evening, when he took time to get away from everything that was occupying his attention. He took time to get away, even if it was only for five minutes, ten minutes, to, to get back and refocus his attention on God. Why did he do that? so that he could keep God at the center of his life. Because isn't it so easy for us maybe to get wrapped up in our day and our jobs and our work? So easy. Pretty soon, we lose all track of God. And uh, and we end up having this sacred-secular split in our life where I have the, the, the secular part of my life that I spend most of my time at, and then on Sunday, I come to church for an hour or two That's my sacred time. Well, God wants to totally turn that around. And so a daily rhythm of setting up times with God to meet him a couple times a day, just to pull back, slow down, and set your eyes on him. That's the first part of the the trellis. So for you, it might be morning. It might be during your break at lunch. It It might be in the evening. But it's very, that's a very, very important part of not allowing distance to come between you and the Lord. Now, there's a second part of this trellis, and it's somewhat similar to the first one. Another consistent part of our lifestyle as Christians is to be gathering with God's people to meet him on a consistent basis. So it's the very same experience that Moses had in solitude. He experienced God's glory. That's what God wants to us, us to experience when we all come together to worship him. 
And we know this from creation on. God set one day in seven, way back at creation, the Sabbath day. He said, I'm going to make that holy. It's set apart so that people, my people, can slow down, get away from the work of the week, and spend part of that day coming together to just worship me, to focus on me. Uh, And I think the very fact that God put that on his calendar at the very beginning of creation, what that tells me is God looks forward to Sunday morning. (laughs) He's looking forward to it. And I think he wants us to look as forward to it as he does because this is the time he set aside way, way long ago on his calendar to meet with his people. What does God want to do when he meets with us? Well, we have an illustration of this from King Solomon in 2 Chronicles chapter 5, verses 11 to 14. This is the dedication day of, God's, uh, of the temple that Solomon built, the place where they, the people of God would come together once every seven days to worship God. Now, I want to read for you uh, what happened on this very, first, this very first day when the people of God came together. 2 Chronicles Listen to what happened. Verse number 12, it says, All the Levites who were musicians, that is the worship team, they all came together. They stood on the east side of the altar. They were all dressed in fine linen. They were playing all different kinds of instruments, cymbals and harps and lyres. And there were also 120 priests that became a choir that day, and they they brought trumpets with them. And then it says, As all of the worship began in harmony and unity, all the singers singing in unison and the trumpeters and playing their instruments and everyone's heart was engaged in worshiping the Lord. It even gives us a lyric they were singing. He is good. His love endures forever. in 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 the climate of that worship, this is what happened. Then the temple of the Lord was filled with a cloud And the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the temple of God. So you can get the picture. Here they are, worshiping with all their hearts and souls, engaging God. And in the the midst of all that, this cloud comes down from heaven, a sign of God's presence, and enters into that temple. And the text says that it was so powerful that some of those singers and priests They couldn't even stand on their feet. The presence of God was so great. That's what God likes to do in worship gatherings, is reveal his glory, reveal his presence. You know, the Hebrew word for glory, one of the words is the word kabod. It originally meant weight or heaviness. Eventually, the word came to refer to the weight or influence of a person when they walk into the room. The greater the person, the greater the kabod, the greater the weight of their influence when they come into the room. And so when we come together like we do on Sunday morning, it's not just a social moment for us who are gathered here. It is the social moment that God has been desiring all week long for us to come together so he has the opportunity to reveal his glory, his personal presence, in a way that we feel it 
It's not just a dead place. It's not just an empty place. It's not just a place where there's a bunch of people. You know what? Uh, The Lions Club gets together, and it's a great club. The Rotary Club gets together. It's a great club. Uh, The JCs get together. They're a great club. Uh, Kiwanis get together. I, I, I can't think of any more clubs right now. But they're wonderful. But, the, but when God's come, people come together, there is the thing that distinguishes God's people in their gatherings from all the other human social gatherings on this planet is when we come together, God wants to pour his glory. To in, he wants us to feel and experience his presence in this room. Now, how does that happen? How does that happen? The Bible teaches us there's only one way that happens. Only one way. And you and I have a huge part in it. In fact, um, the first Palm Sunday, I think, is a good lesson for us in in what causes that to happen. On that first Palm Sunday... When Jesus was coming into Jerusalem, where was he headed? He was headed for the temple. He was coming in as their great, long-awaited king of glory. He was going to bring glory, his presence, into that temple and take his rightful place as their king. What what was happening as as he came into Jerusalem that day? It says that it was just a place of praise, a place of worship. People were taking their coats off. And they were laying them on the path in front of the mule that he was riding on. People were taking palm branches, and they were just waving them all over the place. And then, with loud voices, they were crying out, Hosanna, and they were worshiping and praising God and and exalting God for all of his greatness and goodness. In other words, their hearts, when they came into that worship gathering, their hearts were absolutely, totally engaged on one thing. They were there to engage the Lord and to worship him from the depths of their being. And as they did that, God responded to their welcome, to their invitation, and God came into that room, and they experienced his presence. And that's what God, that's what God desires when we come together on a Sunday morning. And if, if every one of us who know Christ will walk through those doors intent upon one thing, setting our minds free from distractions, to worship the mighty God who longs to be present with his people, we, we, will, go, we will move from a three to a five. Or if, I'm a, if, we're, if we're at a five right now, we'll move up to a seven or an eight in terms of the dynamic, the reality of God's presence in this room. So much so that if a person comes into this room who hasn't been in church in 50 years, perhaps they're an atheist, a hardcore atheist, When they walk into a gathering like that, they will know that there's someone other than just people who are present in that room. They may not be able to articulate, define it, but they will know that the presence of God is real. God is there. And so this is my encouragement. This is my admonition to me and to all of us today. When we come together on Sundays, that we come with this kind of high intent purpose, knowing that God's been waiting for six days for the seventh day to get here so he can show us more of himself. I want to mention this too, that we do live in a time when, uh, in, the Ameri- in, in, in the United States, when our, our Sunday go-to-meeting habits and practices have really sort of tumbled and gone downhill. 
And I just want to be very honest with you as Christians. If, if your Sunday morning attendance habit is a 50 percenter, a one out of every two times, a one out of every three times, guys, we're missing it. We're missing a dynamic that God has said in the Scripture is the second part of a structured plan for spiritual growth. I just want that to sink in today. Uh, it's, it's just really important. The third part of the spiritual growth tre- trellis uh, that we're shown in Scripture is another gathering of God's people. And this time it's the small group connection. Acts chapter 5, verse 41 tells us that the first generation of Christians, they were meeting as a large group like we are. They were meeting in the temple courts, thousands of them. But then beyond that, they were also meeting in another very important setting. They were meeting, chapter 5, 41 says, they were meeting with one another house to house where they never stopped teaching and telling the good news of Christ. They were doing four things in these small circles. Acts chapter 2, verse 42 tells us. Number one, they were getting into God's word together. Number two, they were eating together. That's always a great part of it. Number three, they were praying together. And then finally, they came so close in their fellowship, in their relationships, so close to one another in feeling safe with each other, transparent, trusting one another, that the greatest explosion of love the world had ever seen happened in first century Jerusalem when that church was first born. There's nothing like it in the history of the world. They loved each other so much that the love couldn't be contained, and it spilled out into the streets of Jerusalem. It spilled out beyond that into Judea, Samaria, and to the rest of the world. But it, it was born, it was nurtured in those small gatherings where people just opened their hearts to each other, and they were there seeking God together, encouraging each other. Romans chapter 12 describes this new relationship phenomenon never before seen on the earth. Verse number 9 says they were loving each other sincerely without pretense. Verse 12 says they were devoted to each other in family love. Verse 15 says they shared emotional life together, the ups and downs. It says they were rejoicing with those who rejoiced and weeping with those that wept. Verse 16 says they lived in harmony with each other. God was removing grudges and and all that junk and garbage from their hearts. And verse 21 says the result was they began to overcome evil by doing good in their community. that That was spiritual growth. That's emotionally healthy spiritual growth that's taking place. Now, the early church put such importance on small groups in the first century that we cannot overstate their importance in the 21st century. We simply can't. They're not an option for spiritual life and development and growth. They're, they're an essential part, according to the Scripture. But someone might say, well, don't small groups just become cliques? They can. But you know, the only way they can do that is if Satan becomes the one in control of them. Because Satan loves selfishness. Satan loves to turn people's attention inward upon themselves or just upon their own little circle. That's Satan's deal. He's he's the alienator. Uh, He's the self-centered one. But if Jesus is the center of that circle and hearts that are in that circle are seeking him, then I'll tell you what, it is the most warm, welcoming, receptive, receiving place anyone will find on the planet because it's filled with people that are exploding with love. That's what a small group God calls it to be. Um, And that's why 
we are so intent and so strong upon emphasizing the importance of every believer plugging in to another circle of believers where this kind of growth and this kind of dynamic can take place. And if you, a great many are, the great majority are, if you're here and you're not, I want to encourage you. Uh, there's information in the lobby. Grab that. Take that action step. Now, the fourth part, the fourth part of this trellis of spiritual growth is serving. In the same way that the greatest eruption of love in the world ever, that ever happened was seen in that first century church between God's people, it also became the greatest of explosion of love outward into their world. What that means is God's people became so filled with love for their communities that they went to every extreme to serve the needs of people. They didn't cloister. They didn't gather up in a holy huddle because holy huddle churches always implode. They always collapse in on each other. Loving churches explode and take the word and the love and the care of Christ everywhere they can. Now, our example from the scripture of a, of a person who was on fire with God's love is a woman named Tabitha. And her story is in Acts chapter 9, verses 36 to 42. What we do know about Tabitha is most likely she was a, um, well, she was a, a single woman, which probably in that day means that her husband had died. So this is a woman who knew uh, the valley of grief. This is a woman who knew what it was to struggle through things, to go through a test of faith. It also tells us she was a very industrious woman. She made clothes and probably things like blankets, cloth products. That was her trade. She lived in Joppa, which like all cities down to this day, had lots of desperate people in desperate need. But this is the one statement about Tabitha that really stands out, and it's in verse 36. It says, she was always doing good and helping the poor. Now, you know, her name in both, uh, her Hebrew name is Tabitha. Her Greek name was Dorcas. And the name Dorcas means gazelle. So people notice something gazelle-like in Tabitha, in her spirituality. Uh, a, a gazelle is this grateful, graceful kind of deer-like creature that they don't sort of run. They, they more or less bound. They keep leaping as they, they cover the ground, and they, are, they have a lot of energy and speed. That is evidently what they saw in this woman when it came to loving other people. She was graceful like a gazelle. She was full of energy. She, she in leaps and bounds, with all the speed she could, she was trying to pour her life out in serving the needs of other people. Well, one day, she got sick, and then she died. And everybody was grief-stricken. And they're probably saying, we can't afford to lose a woman like Tabitha. And so what they did, they sent over to the next town. Peter, the apostle Peter was over there. He came over. And you know, Peter had been with Jesus three times when he saw Jesus raise somebody from the dead. And so I think Peter comes over and you know what? He, th- he says, I think I'll go and give that a try. <laughs> and so Peter goes in, and he, the scripture says he kneels down beside Tabitha. He prays over her, and lo and behold, the Lord raises her from her deathbed. He raises her up. 
And the scripture goes on to say it became known all over Joppa, so much so that many people believed in the Lord. And here's my thought. I'll bet that many of those people who came to faith, the way for that had been paved sometime before by the works of love and grace and care that this woman did in Jesus' name. She had already paved the way and borne witness to him. And Jesus made that statement, they will know that you are my disciples. They'll know that you're really genuine and that what you're talking about is real by the love that, they ha- that, that you have for, other, for others, for one another. Uh, and so what I see in that is this. Tabitha shows us that the Lord of the resurrection, who is our Savior, and the Lord of love, who is the one who reaches out. It's a lot of times when we are showing the world the Lord of love, that it paves the way for many of them to come and know the Lord of the resurrection. Uh, so... Uh, Dorcas went looking for people, just like a leaping gazelle. She went looking for people that she could pour her life into. You know, I know of a story that was shared with me just uh, last Sunday, in fact, of one of the ladies in our church, and she wants to stay anonymous. I asked her to come and share the story, but she wanted to stay anonymous because she, she wanted the glory only to go to the Lord. But uh, she was at Target, one of the Targets in the area, Shopping, she was standing in line getting ready to check out. There was a woman in front of her that had a totally full grocery cart. But, <clears throat> but God put it overwhelmingly upon the heart of the lady I'm speaking of from our own church fellowship here, uh, put it in her heart to offer to pay for that entire grocery cart full of groceries. Um, and in their, in their small group the previous week, they had been discussing how listening to God's voice, looking for opportunities to serve, discussing the Good Samaritan. And God just put it into her heart to do that very thing just in the course of her normal day. Uh, and that's where sometimes the greatest works of God happen, just in the course of the way, just in the course of our going in our lives. Anyhow, she offered to do this, and the, and the woman said to her, Why? Why would you want to do that? And her response was, well, I just feel like God put it in my heart to do this. That's the only answer I have for you. Well, she went ahead and the woman took her offer and paid for the groceries. And then afterward, after they got out of the line, they had a little conversation. And and it came to be that that, uh, the timing couldn't have been greater for this woman because she had just been diagnosed with cancer, and she had just lost her job. And uh, so that's the way God works. That's gazelle-like love. That's just looking for a way to be poured out. Our world needs a lot of bounding gazelles going with the energy and speed of Christ's love. And another thing about it, if we want to grow spiritually in leaps and bounds, one, one part of the trellis for that kind of spiritual growth, one, one thing that's got to be part of our lifestyle is pouring our lives out. As we serve, we grow. As we serve, Christ is flowing through us, and that, that's his glory shining out from us. So, 
a, a, a structure for spiritual growth so that God doesn't become distant to us as we go, as we chronologically advance in our Christian life. We want to, we want to keep growing spiritually as well. Now, I want to give a huge warning here as we come to the close of this sermon. Huge warning. Um, you know, a Christian can be doing all four of these things and doing them for years and still be a vine uh, dead on the trellis, spiritually dry. Because if we do these, it's only when we do these things with our hearts engaged with God that these things have any, that they become avenues of his life and his glory flowing into us. So if we come to worship without our hearts engaged, distracted, if we go to our small group just as another meeting to go to, if we take, come to our time of solitude with God just as another duty that I got to get off my checklist here, if we, uh, you know, if that's the way we're doing these things, if we go about our ministry just as a, just something I got to, I'm, I'm obligated to do this, then we're going to dry up on that trellis. And we're not going to sense God's presence in our lives. Like I said, it's only when we do these things from our heart and keep that that way that we will continue to grow in the experience of God's presence. And that's why the Lord says in Proverbs 4.20, he says this, My son, my daughter, listen closely to what I say. Listen closely to my words. Keep them in your hearts, for they are life to those who find them and health to their whole body. And then he says this in verse 22, Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring out of which your life flows. Now, the reality is Satan will dog your steps every single day of your Christian life trying to get at your heart. He has four goals. He'll settle for any one of them. He wants to dull your heart. He wants to distract your heart. He wants to defeat your heart. He wants to disillusion your heart so that he can do one of two things. He can either pull you into a dead routine of just doing these as checklist items or he can actually pull you away from the spiritual trellis altogether. There's a great temptation in our busy world when it comes to our relationship with God to be half an inch deep and a mile wide. But that isn't what God desires. He wants us to keep getting deeper and deeper and deeper in our, in our spirituality, in our growth with him. So a couple action steps as we wrap this up this morning. The first one is this. I'm just asking all of us, beginning with me, let's evaluate our hearts in the light of where these four things, that we, these four parts of the spiritual growth plan, where are they? in your life? Where are they in my life in terms of being a, a part of my life that's just woven into my lifestyle, the way I live? The first one is solitude time with God. The second one is that being faithful and consistent in that seventh day gathering, that one in seven time coming together and being in worship and engaging in worship. Number three, connected to a small group getting close and heart-to-heart with people, God's people. And then number four, serving and pouring your life out like a gazelle uh, to those around. If we keep those four things in place with a heart for God, 
we're going to know God deeper, 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 deeper as we live for him. And then the second action step is this. Uh, beginning about uh, the third week of April, uh, we've just gone through these eight weeks where we're not just going to drop it. Uh, we have what's called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality 2.0. And what the next series focuses on is, is the doing part. Uh, and so we're going to continue so that, we, so that we, these things become an established part of our lives. And the small groups, most all of them are going to continue in this as well. And, um, and those, all that material will be available over the next two or three weeks for the small groups to get, you know, to get a hold of and get plugged into and all those things. We'll be saying more about it as the days go on. But um, just an encouragement for us to keep growing in Christ. And then the final thing, and then we're going to pray, is uh, if you're here this morning and you are one of those people seeking God, but you're not sure whether you have a relationship with the Lord, I want you to know that the Lord Jesus Christ is here in this room. He is very much desiring that relationship with you. And the way that you enter into that is by believing that what he did on that cross, he did for you. He died for your sins and all your wounds so that if you bring them to him, he will forgive and heal. And when he does that, he will come into your life and make, him, make himself real to you show you his presence and his glory. If you haven't done that, you can make that decision where you sit today, and I would encourage you to do that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you this morning for your word. Thank you, Father, for your great love and your grace. And Lord, I'm thankful that you don't leave us floundering, but you give us direction on how we can go grow deeper and deeper in you. Lord, help us, Lord, to, to put that trellis in place And never, Lord, to remove ourselves from it. And Father, uh, show us your glory. Reveal to us your glory. And Lord, I give you all praise in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.